Yeah. Yeah, old school. That's what I'm talking about. Listen, this ain't for everybody. Some of y'all need to hear this. Huh. I know you're in the trenches fighting, but check it out. I'm going to put it down like this so I can help the saints understand. Everything you're going through is all part of the master plan. Or what? You thought because you got saved, everything was going to be peaches and cream? You better wake up, son. Don't nothing come to a sleeper but a drink. Faith without works is dead. Read your Bible. You know what it says. He who don't work, don't eat. Slackers don't get fed. Huh, yeah. Jesus said, he who puts his hands to the plow looks back the same ain't fit. Some of y'all ain't been in the Christmas five minutes and you about ready to quit. I ain't mad at you. I'm just hitting you with the real. <laughs> if you died for me and I was still tripping, now how you think that make you feel? Check this out. Deep game. This here's deep, huh? Some of y'all ain't sawing nothing but you're studying trying to reach, huh? But after him who's able to possess your father's by his glory. Struggles might be part of your testimony, but it ain't the end of the story. Now the point of prophesied way back in the day. Choir, sing your hook right here and see if the church can relate.
So tell us a little bit about Mr. Krasner and, and how you got started with this um, book. As you very well know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners do, uh, you're, you're not alone in having to have um, uh, gone through those types of ordeals uh, when you're talking about issues of divorce and custody uh, in the United States. It's over 50%. Um, so a lot of people um, have you know, had uh, experiences at one time or another, or almost certainly know people that have, um, that have gone through various aspects of the system. But um, you know, uh, much like you, uh, I think when you um, are going to speak on a subject, uh, especially in my situation where I decided to um, write a column about it, um, it's because you have a personal connection to it. Um, and, and during that ordeal, when you go through it, um, you know, I think a lot of people try to make sense of it and, and figure out a way, how can I take a challenging time in, in my life and, and turn that into something proactive and positive. And um, given all the uh, variables and elements that I was dealing with at the time, there was an opportunity and, and some guidance to do that. And, uh, you know, I think it's an issue that is not, I think it's underreported by a lot of the mainstream media uh, to some extent. Um, and I think it's something that people, you know, once they go through these ordeals and, and if they're lucky enough to, uh, you know, move past them, um, you know, they don't really bring it up again. You know, they don't really bring up the, you know, the, certainly the issues that I touch on, which are the ethical side of things and and perhaps um, things that are going on that shouldn't be going on um, in the system. And, you know, that system itself, and when you're talking about family law and these family courts, these things are designed to uh, keep everything quiet. Um, they do not like transparency, and they certainly don't like the outside public uh, watching what goes on within. And that creates a lot of... Um, a lot of opportunity for those that are profit driven in the industry. And I think that's where a lot of the breakdown comes is it attracts a certain type of lawyer in the judiciary um, to that specific area of law, as well as many of the judges that, you know, were once lawyers in family law themselves. So I think there's a breakdown from top to bottom in that, in that specific area. And um, it's unfortunate because I think it, it adversely impacts, you know, what's truly the best interest of a child or, um, either of their parents going through it. So hopefully that, right. that kind of answers your question. Yeah, I think uh, the, the the best interest of the child is uh, totally forgotten because everybody else is, um, you know, posturing for position and trying to um, throw their power around, and it gets crazy because to me it seems like within the child it even causes more disrespect um, for the child and it's putting the child in a position where he has to choose uh, between parents sometimes and seem like that's a choice that a child should never have to make. Correct. And I, I certainly agree with that. I've always, uh, you know, from day one in my own situation, always supported the idea of uh, shared parenting and equal parenting. And I think, um, you know, most people, a lot of people out there do, um, what tends to be the problem, though, is is you get a lot of these um, highly charged situations, if you will, where, you know, you could have a, a lot of these ordeals where both parents have good intentions uh, when cooler heads prevail, but the fires are always being stoked by those that are benefiting and profiting off of the chaos and misfortune. And when you enter that into the fray of people's raw emotions and they stir the pot, uh, you, you're headed for a, a litigation nightmare sometimes. 
and uh, the, the amount of money that is transacting back and forth by the billable hour um, is is concerning, and there are a lot of red flags that go up. And uh, you know, it's it's truly one area of law that it doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons. And I think a lot of the systems out there are very um, good old boy type systems. I mean, these are county courts where a lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes, and there's a lot of uh, impropriety that takes place, and there's very little oversight that can do anything about it. And when you mix all those ingredients together, it can have a disaster of a result for um, for children and parents going through it. So, yeah, I was going to ask you uh, what made you decide to write about uh, the family law industry, but I think you kind of touched on that too, that you had a personal experience with it as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's that, you know, I think a lot of parents go through this where, at least the ones I've interviewed and talked to, uh, where they get so beaten down by the system, you know, whether it's involved with the court or it's uh, child protective services, oftentimes it's uh, financially dealing with uh, uh, entities like child support services um, and, you know, enforcement in that nature, and the amount of, of inappropriateness on behalf of the judiciary in that area is, um, is I think what, you know, often beats these people down, you know, and, and a lot of these folks are not bad parents. Uh, you know, certainly in my case, um, I got to a point uh, like many of them where you just get tired of being afraid. You know, at first I think you go into one of these ordeals and really there is a threat there. And the threat is that your time with your kid is going to be interrupted. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times these uh, court players take advantage of that, play off these fears, and next thing you know, uh, they've got you in a position where it is adversely impacting your financial resources, uh, your ability to provide for your kid yourself, um, and they can they can really do a lot of harm to a lot of people. Um, especially, you know, some of the worst cases are those where you know good parents are forced into these um, contempt situations that they should never be in. And uh, some of them are even uh, incarcerated quite a bit, and that's become a real big problem. And the incarceration stems from this child support industry um, that has, uh, you know, kind of spiked up. Um, and a lot of times, you know, you'll have a certain percentage of these situations that I feel, you know, it's legitimate. Like, you know, if, if you're a parent, should you support your child? Yes. Um, should you do it with a virtual gun to your head uh, and threats? No, you shouldn't. And that's where that's where the system absolutely breaks down and um you know we outlawed debtors prisons a long time ago and i would argue that a lot of people are often getting incarcerated um under false pretenses and because they have been so wiped out of everything just from the process itself you know it really creates a whole series of other problems um and all of a sudden what began is a you know a divorce or custody proceeding has now turned into um a very complicated web of uh, criminal situations uh, that enter the fray, and it's it's truly unfortunate. I think one of the reasons I was passionate about doing this show to uh, Mr. Krasner is I know uh, I talk to uh, a, a lot of men, uh, young men, and I mean potentially good men fathers that would like to uh, spend more you know time with their children, but for whatever reason. Um, it, it went down with the, the with the mother. The the fathers are afraid to enter into enter into this arena to even uh, you know execute their rights or even try to get visitation custody. 
and um, yeah, it's uh, I don't know. I know it was overwhelming, you know, with me, and I did everything for my child. You know what I mean? And every Christmas, birthday, uh, holiday, I was the last person on the visit list. You know, it got to the point where I just couldn't yeah. take it no more, and uh, I jumped off into this big ocean called family court. And uh, next thing I know, my son had an attorney, and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> you know what I mean? And now he's got yeah. to, and I'm like, "Wow, how is that possible?" You know, I did everything for this kid. I'd leave my office, you know, and and rush to pick him up to take him to his sports, uh, his karate classes, and and everything, but. I, I could never see him. It was always at his mother's whim, you know, and it, it was just crazy. So um, hopefully some, we doing this show, you know, we can give some kind of encouragement to some of the fathers out there um, that they can get help too, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think, you know, and I, I think you hit on a few good points there. Um, you know, you, it's funny you mentioned the, uh, you know, the children having attorneys assigned to them, and that's, that, that's always um, – you know, one of those iffy situations in and of itself. A lot of times in courts, um, the judges that appoint those attorneys in these cases, they're they're quite good friends with the attorneys they're appointing. These guys are uh, called guardian ad litems in most cases, and they get a lot of money, and the people that are forced to pay for them usually are mom and dad on, on both sides of the equation. And if uh, you don't pay for them, the court uh, certainly sends you a uh, all the repercussions and consequences that can happen, <laughs> right. you know, which, which in plain language uh, for you and I, that's, that's, that sounds an awful lot like extortion, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's primarily, I think, you know, what it, what it comes down to. Um, what about the further, court, like, what about, what about the child psychologist that the court appoints yep. that the parents have to pay for? Exactly. Well, that's another part of it. You know, you have these custody valuations, and I was, in fact, I was um, just trying to assist in a uh, uh, current ordeal that's transpiring in my neck of the woods um, that involves uh, the um, the inappropriateness, inappropriate avenues that some of those evaluations can take. Now, you know, there's two ways of looking at at those things. One is, should there even be a right for um, that to enter the fray if parents don't wish to have that? A lot of times the courts will force a psych evaluation based on, you know, allegations that are made by, you know, one parent or the other. So they call on the court psychologist, they do a child custody evaluation, and they base their, you know, there's, there's supposed to be a criteria, a set of guidelines um, that they base that criteria on. Um, so it's not just, you know, their their opinion of, it's, you know, this child should be with mom, dad, it's going to be. Um, but it's a very lucrative industry too. It all feeds into the third parties that bunge off the family court system. And when you take a step back and you look at it and look at how much money everybody is making and how much money both mom and dad are, are kind of dishing out, um, you can see why there's very little incentive um, for those people that are working within the industry and within the judiciary to perform that system. There's no incentive on their part. So we get back to this whole best interest of a child well, in their best interest of a court, it's really not in their interest to do the best interest of the child. Then they would find themselves out of a job. So, you know, uh, we, we have to stop incentivizing this stuff. And, uh, and you know, just to go on a side tangent, the worst possible people to be making decisions, you know, uh, for uh, child custody situations and these divorce matters are lawyers and judges. I mean, these folks are predisposed to an adversarial court system they're not going to do what's in anyone's best interest, but they're own. Right. 
I think we have a caller here, Mr. Krasner. Yep. Hello, you're on. Yeah, hello, Lamont. How are you? This is Joe. How you doing? Hello. I'm doing well, Joe. How you doing? Not bad, not bad. Um, I wanted to talk and ask a question. Um, um, I have a question for your guest. And he was talking about the kind of incentives that the court system would have to be corrupt. What are those incentives? Well, in terms of incentives of, of the, the court system uh, continuing the way it's continuing, you have a lot of these folks who are discussing the third parties and a lot of, for example, custody evaluators. Um, they make a lot of bread and butter finances off the clients they receive from these court systems. So if you're in a practice and 50% of your your net profits a year are coming from uh, recommendations from a judge who's giving you 10 custody cases where you're spending five, six hours, you know, with, uh, with both parents trying to evaluate them, that's a lot of money exchanging hands. You know, and I think especially when you have situations, and, and sometimes in family courts, um, it's not appointed. It's you'll have an uh, attorney for the child appointed to a nonprofit organization where the parents do not pay. But other times you don't, and uh, a judge will assign a guardian ad litem and tell the parents you got to pay X, Y, and Z thousands of dollars, and um, you know whether you have it or not. Uh, but at the end of the day, that judge is assigning the child's attorney for them, and it's usually an attorney that they're picking from that crop of people that they already know very well in that court system. So if you're on good terms with the judge, uh, it's like free money in your hands. Well, I, don't, I still don't understand the incentive because if the court is going to give, um, let's say, 10 cases a week to a certain psychologist, what does the psychologist care um, as long as he comes, comes out with a, a good diagnosis of the, of the mental welfare of the child? How does that make the court or the psychologist um, become incentivized um, in such a way that um, doesn't benefit the child or doesn't benefit um, the husband? Sure. I think it's, you know, in some of these court systems that have these small town atmospheres, um, especially some of the ones I've looked at, you have these systems of patronage. And, you know, oftentimes you'll have the same, the same exact five or six uh, Court or child custody evaluators that spend a lot of time working with the courts, and then you'll have a certain you know breakdown of specific attorneys working in front of specific judges that you know you see patterns after a while um, where they have certain preferences of these evaluators coming before that judge or before their case um, because a lot of times what you hear from folks is they tend to shift certain ways. There's certain, in other words. Jane Smith, who's an evaluator, will be assigned to a specific attorney she's been assigned to before that may always recommend Jane Smith, um, whereas they know X, Y, and Z, or ten, nine times out of ten, they can expect that she's going to evaluate favorable to their clients. Sometimes you catch on to these patterns. You know, I've seen it in the court system near where I live where, you know, it, oftentimes one of the, the – higher, uh, uh, more ethical, if you will, evaluators who um, has a record so let me of give you very a, fair. Let me give you a hypothetical so, uh, uh, for my edification. Yep. Let's say there's a judge, Judge judge Judy, and she want, and she's judging 
in family court. She gives 10 cases a week to evaluator A and 20 cases a week to evaluator B. Um, why, how does it benefit her to give 10 cases a week to evaluator A, who may come, come down arbitrarily nine times out of 10 on behalf of the husband? And well, why would she give um, cases to evaluator B, let's say 20 times, who would come down 20 cases, uh, 19 cases out of 20, for the, um, for the aggrieved ex-wife? How does it benefit the court um, to do that? Well, it's not so much the court as it is some of their friends for the attorneys. And you have to remember in a lot of these situations, it's not the court arbitrarily assigning the evaluator. They do it at the advice or agreement of the attorneys practicing before them. So oftentimes the attorneys will suggest a specific evaluator in these cases. And right. the judge usually just goes along with that suggestion. So, for example... You know, in a lot of the cases I've seen, you'll have situations where one of these more ethical evaluators will be recommended. And then all of a sudden, you know, at some sort of juncture, one of the attorneys uh, slips it in there or strenuously objects to it and recommends a specific other evaluator. Um, and then you mm-hmm. find out that in similar circumstances prior to that, when the ethical one has been referred and suggested for no, no reason whatsoever, in a bizarre fashion, they've recommended the same specific other person. And then you start having red flags, saying, like, what is the incentive there? Why is it, you know, going this way or that way? Or, you know, and there's there's a whole series you know, of I would imagine and balances. That was my next. Lamont, do you mind if I keep asking yeah. questions, or do you have questions of your own, or do you Yeah, want... I have some questions for him. Okay. Just hold on. We'll get right back to you in a minute, Joe. Sure. But uh, You can put me on mute. But I appreciate your call. <laughs> Is my home too well, 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 Joe, I don't know. It's a lot of feedback coming from you. Yeah, that's what I mean. So, so uh, if you want to mute me, it's fine. Um, and I can just... Well, don't go uh, Don't go uh, well. We're going to jump back with you. But okay. I'm going to mute you for a minute. All right. All right. Steve, what I wanted to ask you, does writing on these issues tend to energize you or exhaust you? Or uh, what's your, your personal feeling on that one? Depends. You know, uh, it takes me, when I was writing the articles for these columns, you know, sometimes uh, you get a, very energized and can write them quickly. Other times it was very difficult, um, you know, when you're calling up and especially you've interviewed a lot of people yourself. You know, sometimes doing that um, and doing the research, you hear some and, and see some very depressing things. Um, and then it's almost as if you're reliving that experience again yourself as you've gone through it. So it can be very difficult to take that and then put it into words. I think for me the most exhausting part is um, is, is the number of uh, emails and, and messages I get and documents people send me out of the blue and uh, you know pleading for help because they don't they don't know where to go you know they're, they're not getting it from the attorneys in the system they're not getting it from any uh, uh, checks and balances your your friend Joe mentioned checks and balances that's another big problem there's not a lot of credible oversight in any of this industry. Um, so a lot of stuff that people are getting away with, they're getting away with, and nobody's, you know, looking into it. Um, and that creates a, a huge dilemma. So for me, you know, sometimes, depending on the topic, it was easy for me to write about it. And I got energized about it because it was finally good to speak out uh, on some of the complexities of this stuff uh, that nobody else was speaking out on. Um, 
And then in other times, you know, you get exhausted by writing one of these because you're trying to take so much emotion and make sense of it and tell people stories and, and do it in a succinct way so that it resonates with the general public. Um, so I think that that tends to be more exhausting um, to tackle some of the more emotional um, charged aspects of these types of ordeals. How did you choose um, your different topics and um, the people you interviewed and quote in your book? A lot of times, um, you know, I went looking around, uh, you know, I started sometimes with social media, sometimes, you know, when you write that first article, I remember publishing for the first time and getting a lot of contacts after then. And then you just, you, you talk to a lot of people that have experienced it a lot. You know, you'll have, people in the industry that want to talk to you about it and tell you what's going on. Um, some of them willing to come forward, some of them not. Um, and then you have to decide, well, how do we break so many issues down? There's so many variables that are overlapping one another. When you're talking about the family law industry, family court industry, and what's going on, you're, you're not just talking about the courtroom. You're talking about the ethical side of it, professional misconduct side of it, um, what goes on with the money, um, how lawyers are using net worth statements, for example, to um, uh, kind of propel cases outward and, and, and you know, profit uh, to the largest extent possible and how they, you know, manipulate the litigation. You're also talking about foster care issues. It's also talking about child protective services and, and, and just the whole kind of kit and caboodle of it all. And how do you take all of those issues because they're very overwhelming and explain it um, to the general public or yeah, just, you know, your layman person or your professor, uh, what have you. Um, so I kind of chose the topics uh, one at a time just by untangling an average case. You know, in, in a great number of these cases, all the articles that, that I was writing about deal with one aspect of what may go on in one case. And if somebody throws all that at you, it's really complicated. It's a messy web. So my idea was to untangle it one layer at a time, explain each layer, uh, so as not to over, kind of overwhelm somebody with the problems that exist in a lot of these cases. Uh, that way, when you put it all together, you can oftentimes get a real good sense of, of what is truly transpiring um, in these ordeals. And, um, you know, it's not pretty stuff, and it's not, it's, you know, a lot of these folks that are, are talking about it and outspoken about it, they're not wrong. You know, sure, you're going to have the people that are yelling conspiracy theories and corruption and this or that. Um, I've always been taught that, you know, only only really go out there and write about and, and publish about in this capacity that which you can prove. Um, so there's never, you know, there was never a time where I was writing an article where I didn't have, you know, files and files of information to really kind of make that argument. Um, but again, you know, it's all—it's always about picking and choosing what article, you know, and sometimes the people you're interviewing for one article will actually be a better person to kind of highlight in a different area of that situation or, or those types of cases. So I kind of let that almost guide me in terms of the topic I was writing about, you know, what, what are these folks really saying and um, is it going to be uh, issues related to parental alienation, or are they really more or less talking about aspects such as gatekeeping and, and all sorts of issues with foster care? And it kind of guides itself. Um, and that's been kind of my experience in writing styles. Just, you know, you may start with one topic and it morphs into a completely different topic. 
and then sometimes I'd break it up into two articles um, and publish it that way. So it just really kind of depends on the flow of things. Wow, and these two things keep jumping in my head, money and uh, the best interest of a child, money and the best interest of a child, money and the best interest yep. of a child. Wow. You know, and the best interest, I, you know, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, is I, I've always thought the best interest of a child is to have, you know, a good mother and good father involved in their life, not somebody that's, you know, thrown out on the street because they can't afford a roof over their head. Or, or a third party appointed by the court that can't even conduct his own own household. Exactly. Yeah. And I had that. You know, I've always I've always found it I've always found it amusing with the um, you know the the judges in these cases ordering uh, psychological evaluations of parents and, and their fitness to be parents. It makes you wonder in the totality of the whole situation of uh, the judges and lawyers that are practicing in this area of law. What their you know what their results would be if they had the same kind of evaluation done to them, because uh, it certainly seems that they're not you know they're certainly not based uh, and grounded uh, in the area of morals and ethics in a lot of these cases. It seems to be just about you know uh, self-preservation and uh, profiting, and um, you know they're very far removed from the uh, adverse impacts that their their maneuvering in courts have on their clients. And ultimately, the kids, you know, and it's uh, it's unfortunate. And it, it's led to a. Uh, go ahead, sorry. No, I'm sorry. I said that. I was just going to say that was two huge words that you just mentioned. Um, one was moral, and the other was ethics. Yep. And um, when you're dealing, like, oftentimes people ask, you know, how do you how do you fix something like this? And, um, you know, I've thought about that a lot. And you can fight it within the system, uh, but that's usually, you know, you're, you're taking your chances. I don't, you know, a lot of people get to the point where, you know, they they may be right and they may have the stronger case um, and they may have their kid being ripped out of their life. But the available recourse to them, unless they're a millionaire, um, is almost come to none. And the, the lower courts that make these decisions for these, they know that. They know that most people cannot appeal a case. They they know that, you know, ultimately they're looking at your net worth statement, so they know exactly how much money you have in advance, and they know that you're not going to be able to afford to really call them out on any improprieties that exist. Um, and there's very few organizations out there that are willing to assist folks that have gone through this type of, of law. Um, and it's, you know, it's just it's one big cycle. And, you know, I've always thought in terms of the ethics and morals of it, though, that you know, that perhaps we should hear more voices, more voices from moral authorities, you know, whether that's priests or rabbis um, and what have you, uh, you know, religious leaders speaking out on this type of thing. Because I think if folks like that were to call these judges and lawyers in this area of law to task, well, they'd be hard-pressed to really kind of get it, get into it publicly with, with folks like that that are really appealing on that level. Because I think a lot of the people working in that industry, you know, have forgotten, you know, pretty much how this really touches on those issues. I think that they're, it attracts a very special kind of person, if you will. Um, and certain industries do that. And, uh, again, this is, you know, custody situations and situations that evolve from it should never be decided by an adversarial court system. It just doesn't ever work out. 
and um, you know now we have how a, about, how, a whole bureaucracy. How about a how about a biased court system? Well, you, you tend to see that a bit too, and and a lot of times people, you know, will say, well, it's biased against fathers, it's biased against mothers. Um, I think it's biased. I've never I, I, I've never that, seen it biased against. Mr. Krasner, I've never seen it biased against mothers. I mean, you have some of these mothers out here. Things are getting better, I guess a little. I guess a little bit more fair in terms of fathers now, because more men are starting to step up. But it was a time not very long ago a mother could be the biggest prostitute, the biggest alcohol, the biggest thief, the biggest everything on the world. Uh, but they wouldn't take that child and give that child to the father. Um, yeah, so, and, and I think I, I think from a historical sense, you're absolutely right. Um, I think, you know, for a long time that was the case. And, and yeah, things are getting a little better um, because they're, you know, I think roles and, and you know, situations and involvement have kind of progressed over time with moms and dads being involved with the kids. But, um, you know, what I've, the disturbing thing I find most is, at least in, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I think that there's bias that does exist. I think that depends on the court and the judge. But what I've also seen, more than I've seen bias of mothers and fathers, it's who has the resources and money and who doesn't. And I think it's, you know, the, the cases usually favor those parents that can buy, and I repeat, buy, forget access to justice. Um, and if you right. can't buy it, you're at a disadvantage, and that's in no, nothing to do with a child's best interest. It's nothing to do with anyone's best interest except the person profiting from it. And that's, yeah, you know, that's, that that's a downer. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah. I, I've seen I've seen a lot of that. One parent could afford the better attorney, um, the better school, have the nicer house. When the other parent is an excellent parent, hardworking, morals principles are in check, um, but they just can't afford to have the good fight. Yep, and you know it's a lot of you know you see this in litigation a lot where um, you know you're just depleting the resources. Of the other of the other party, and when you see it in divorce and custody cases, it's you know it's it's called scorched earth, and that's a problem because you know who loses out at the end of the day when all these funds are being invested into the court system, you know that's less for college educations, that's less for caring for your kid, you know, and, and it's um and, you know they lose and out. Not to even mention the, the emotional drain because uh, both parents can be beat down by this whole court process and and yeah. and they they just they just throw their hands up you know they just uh, I'm tired I quit you know it's almost like uh, I can't even be a parent uh, I can't even raise my child no more I mean I can't even spend time with him you know because now I got somebody else or some things in the middle of all of this you know. Yeah. So, so Steve, what, what do you feel needs to be done in these areas to improve things? Um, I think overall, you need to get more of the uh, outside professionals in when it comes to these decision making. Um, I don't think there's a perfect system, and I don't even think there's necessarily a perfect solution. But I can certainly say that I don't think what you have in place now with this uh, this type of adversarial profiting system deciding the fates of kids. And parents um, in these ordeals is the correct one. You know, it's it's the oversight is broken. The, the system itself is, you know, more or less from a from an infrastructure level to an individual level. You have a lot of corrupt practices going on. Nobody's willing to call it out, and it's just going to get worse. So I think to reform it, you need to take that component out of it. 
and uh, you know, and that component, you know, are all those people profiting from it. I think it's the wrong way to go. I think that there's plenty of, of much more um, ethical and moral people in our society that can certainly assist couples and, and parents going through this uh, with making a better decision, one that, that everybody uh, can be amenable with um, in terms of financially surviving and in terms of being in the life of their kids, you know, because once one parent goes into, you know, litigation and one of these court systems, the other parent, whether they want to or not, are, are forced into it sometimes. And that just creates years and years worth of a, uh, of a bad situation. And it's ultimately going to hurt the kid. You know, there's no help in a kid when it's, when it's embroiled in one of these court systems. Truly see how a child can end up uh, uh, bitter um, having to choose because of this uh, process, having to choose um, to be with one parent or the other and just be torn. Um, yep. That plays out. That plays out in uh, his attitude in school or interacting with other people, and you know, possibly some of the things that uh, we're dealing with today in today's news, with all these uh, kids running into schools with guns and stuff. All that stuff have to come from somewhere. Oh, I agree, and I think you find a lot of, uh, you know, um, not not you know, <laughs> not not your perfect family situation that a lot of those kids were hailing from, if you will. Um, so I think, you know, it, it really kind of tugs at, at the moral fabric of, of society when you really break it down. And um, it's just a question of are there enough people out there to stand up to it? And then, you know, who's going to do anything about it? You know, and that's that's the problem that I think the reformists are, are facing now is, you know, we can you can march about these issues, you can – you can write to your legislatures, you can offer new bills, but who's enforcing it? You know, a lot of times you have these judges and, and players in the court that are protected by all sorts of immunities. Um, and, you know, with, with little, little like oversight, you know, little accountability to the actions that they're committing. Um, and it goes on. And, and, you know, there are certainly other people that know it goes on. And I talk to a lot of lawyers, uh, especially in my county, who don't practice in that area of law, but, practice before some of the same judges on the same uh, environments and they'll they'll be the first to tell you off the record that yeah you know it's a very rigged system and it's um you know it, it it's so far away from what you know they they were aspiring to be in law school you know when they were um, studying and passing the bars and and taking their o's and um you know it really this area of law really got away from that you know, and a lot of people don't even like to associate with it, you know, if they're doing other areas of law. And, and quite frankly, I don't blame them, you know, but at the same time, they're unwilling to stand up to it a lot of times because uh, they see it as a situation. If they stand up to it, they can potentially, you know, um, you know, reap the repercussions and the retribution uh, that often comes with it in terms of uh, not having uh, favorable outcomes for their clients when they're up against the same judge for a different type of case. And that goes on too. So I think you have you have a never-ending cycle. And again, you know, there's no perfect solution. But what we have now, um, we need to find a way uh, not to have that system because it's uh, it's not the right way to go. <laughs> he who created the game also created the rules. Yeah, <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> Certainly. And that's a scary thought, and that's a scary thought, because when you enter into this uh, arena, 
um, as an attorney, I mean, like you said, they they finished law school and the integrity, morals, and principles all in check, and then they find themselves, you know, taking a back seat. I mean, how do they look themselves in the mirror every day? Well, I think they, they, you know, a lot of them, it's funny if you watch them in the courtrooms and you watch them try to, uh, you know, you, you'll see them, you know, absolutely get up, you know, and say something for the benefit of the court record that they know is dishonest and know is misleading. But um, they, they think the ends justify the means because I think there's this overall feeling with a lot of the players in that industry that, you know, these people, because their marriages didn't work out, because they're in this situation, they must have done something wrong. They must have done something to deserve this. Um, so I think that a lot of the lawyers tell themselves that, and I think some of them just don't care. I think they view it as a job, um, just like any other, and they're, you know, they're going to work for the day and then just leave their job in the courtroom or in their offices uh, at the end of the day when they go home, and they're there with their kids and with their family. Um, and it doesn't even phase them that they have maybe disrupted that same family unit for somebody else. Um, I don't think it even impacts them, a lot of them, to be honest. And that's not to say there aren't those out there in the in the industry that are, are really trying to do the right thing, um, and that's in terms of judges and evaluators and, and lawyers. I think there are there are quite a few of them out there, but when you're facing an infrastructure that is designed from ground up to not allow you to prevail in that manner, you almost have to work within a system that is, you know, not exactly uh, full of integrity. Um, for the best interest of your client and ultimately uh, their child. So there's there's a lot of, a lot of lines that are crossed and a lot of weighing of um, you know even the good ones a lot of weighing of you know uh, do two wrongs make a right kind of uh, philosophy going on and um, you know it's just breeds a system that that is just so self-serving if you will you know and and certainly uh, the interest it, it puts in the uh, lower end of the spectrum in terms of priorities are that of the kids and the parents and, and everything in my research and what I've seen personally and what I've seen through the experience of experiences of others, um, you know, leads to that same conclusion. And again, there's always exceptions to the rules, but um, a lot of times, uh, you know, the greater majority of these things, you know, should not have progressed to the States where they, they have gone. And a lot of the times it's driven by people that are profiting off of it. And I think, you know, you hit, it, you hit the nail on the head earlier. You know, it's, it's a question of who, what wins out at the end of the day, money or morals? You know, and that's, 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 a, that's a hard-pressed answer to come by in these court environments. You know, and rarely do we see – I think we rarely see the morals win out anymore. Well, you know, and, and I, I applaud even, those even that are, are fighting it. <laughs> Even even in the law profession, period. Sometimes, because I <laughs> I talk to a lot of attorneys, and um, for some reason they want everybody else to pay for their education, and I'm the first <laughs> one to tell them I didn't make you go to law school. Said so you could have been a plumber for all I care. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, <laughs> I don't feel like I have to pay for all your education, your child's education, everybody else. You know, I'm just trying to get a fair deal. You know. Yeah. But, uh, you, you know, you know. It's a lot of them fall into. I mean, you know, you also know the traps. A lot of them fall into this comfortable lifestyle. You know, whether they're working in family law or other, you know, areas of the industry, and and whether they truly believe in what they're doing or not. You know, at the end of the day, they're kind of trapped by paying their own mortgages. You know, paying for you know exactly. what the kids are expecting, and you know, it's this big cycle. It's again, you know, when do you have the courage of your convictions 
and actually practice those morals that, that you were once looking looking up to at one point uh, when you were you were trying to get to that destination. And uh, you know, there's only a few of them out there that are willing to do that anymore. And again, when you find them, you applaud them. But you know, there are a lot of those that that keep quiet. You know, and they know what goes on, and they're in the bars, um, and they they see this stuff going on. They know the players, and they keep quiet about it. And those are the ones that, um, you know, they can make or break it in in terms of calling out this specific area of law and and almost policing it themselves because they've failed to do that in the past effectively, and it it thrives as a fifty billion dollar a year industry today, and um, that's a lot of money, and that's a big big. That's a big monster of a beast to try to take down. So, you know, you, you, you do what you can. You, you have shows like this. You write articles about it. You write books about it. And you just hope that somebody, you know, with some influence out there, uh, wakes up at some point and really looks into this and says, hey, this is, this is wrong. You know, we got to really change this from top to bottom. Um, and if we don't, uh, we're going to have a lot of problems. And uh, I would argue that we do already because of it. Yeah, as we are having yeah. already. Exactly. As we haven't already. Because every week you're hearing about something new, you know, on the news. You know, um, and it all goes back to corruption, greed, and injustice. And I think we've become immune to those words, too. I think, you know, given the, uh, given the politically charged environment, uh, what plays out on a bigger stage, um, it's hard to identify who's telling the truth. Like, what is corruption? Are they really corrupt, or is it just, you know, the press, you know, uh, pumping up headlines, if you will? Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm always of uh, the mind frame that you have to really get down into the weeds. You have to really look at the facts, look at the evidence, um, and then you can honestly stand there and say, hey, this is a, a rigged system. This is a corrupt system. Um, but if you just hear it time and time again, the average, you know, folks out there listening to the radio or they're watching TV. It's like I think they're immune to those words. Uh, they, they don't ring as much of an alarm bell anymore um, to those no, folks. That they don't really until it until it knocks on their door. Until it knocks on their door, then yes, then it become important to them. You know, and people are very callous and they don't take things serious until it comes home. Yeah, and I think it was. I'm going to get the quote wrong, but I think it was Ben Franklin. Um, or no, Abraham Lincoln, rather, that said that, that you know, when you're dealing with causes of, uh, or a crisis such as uh, this, that until the unaffected people are as outraged as those who are impacted by it, uh, there will be no change. You know, and, and I think, I, and I, I totally misquoted that, but, but it's along those lines, and, um, you know, and I think that, that certainly rings true in this area of law, um, that unless people who are not directly impacted by it or as outraged as those of us who have been through it, um, then I don't see, I don't see the system reforming itself. I don't see anyone calling it out and I don't see anything uh, changing. It's just, it's too big and it's, it's very profitable. doesn't mean that there aren't those of us out there that will do our best to try, um, but more people have to get on board. Absolutely. Because just a few of us, you know, what happens to us, we become, we become targeted as troublemakers. Sure, <laughs> and you know what, and you know what happened to troublemakers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you and, know, and and, um, and and that's the part you to know, take courage to really stand up for what you believe in and and try to make a difference. And um, 
I know I get in trouble a lot of time for speaking my mind, but if I can't be true to myself, who could I be true to? Yep, and I agree. I agree 100% with that, and I think it's the best anyone can do. Um, and uh, you know, it's um, I, I say the word unfortunate a lot, but it's you know, these systems really, really are devastating to people. And if I could advise folks um, that are, you know, at the at the crossroads where they're they're thinking of going the litigation route, they're thinking of going to your courtrooms, um, you give up a lot when you go in there that the people aren't really aware of, you know, don't let these family court or family law lawyers talk you in into one of their sales pitches where you have to be aggressive. You have to do this or that because that's just how it's done there. You know, most of the time they're setting you up for a long several years of just pain, you know, um, and especially if they think they can milk you for, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of profit along the way, you know, anybody looking at a docket sheet in any of these court systems, can easily, easily pinpoint those lawyers that have a history of excessive and abusive motion practice. And, you know, it, it's funny. It's it's not hard to find the evidence of these improprieties and the evidence of, of any kind of uh, uh, corrupt practices, but nobody's willing to do anything when do, do anything with that evidence uh, when they do find it, you know. And um, trust uh, me, I've tried to alerting all is, sorts is there of good? people. Is there a governing body over the uh, the bar association? There is, and it's it's good that you mentioned that because a lot of times, in these, you know, especially on the county levels, um, you have uh, the first step is to re- make a complaint to uh, some of these uh, oversight committees, and it's almost laughable because when you look at the uh, the membership of the oversight committees they're almost always made up of the peers of those that, that are being <laughs> accused. You know? That's why I asked so you the question. Like, That's exactly why I asked you that question. Yeah. I mean, it, right. it's, I, you laugh, but, you know, and I, I laugh at it sometimes too because, you know, I, I looked, for example, you know, especially the, the county that I had the pleasure of going through that I, I know very well, um, you know, I look around and I see the, the patronage systems, you know, from the district attorney all the way over lawyers and the judges and how they all started in the same, you know, town council and worked their way up. And, you know, some of them are in places where they're, you know, they've been representing ethical committees um, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, it's, if you can track it and you can and follow the trail, it's a joke by the time you want to report a violation to someone because they're all, they're all scratching each other's back. I mean, you have established relationships in a lot of these court systems. You have established relationships with the, oversight committees that are supposed to be doing something about this. And then a lot of these oversight committees don't even are, are not even granted the power, um, if you will, and the teeth to really kind of address some of the major problems that are, you know, uh, system-wide in their counties or in their courthouses. Um, they won't touch them, you know, because they're going to hurt their own business in the process because they're still practicing before a lot of the people that the people, uh, the victims of are complaining about. So it's just one big circle. And it goes nowhere. And, uh, you know, a lot of times those processes to even report the judges and the lawyers are so cumbersome that uh, it, it scares most people away. You have to be away. a lawyer. You have to be a lawyer exactly. in order to do it. <laughs> exactly. Just, like, just yep. like what I found out with the situation that I had with an attorney, and I went to the bar, and this particular attorney, he had to be, he was a, what you call a judge pro tem, where he acts as a judge sometimes, but he's an attorney. Is that what you call him? And... Um, the people on the bar knew this cat, 
You know what I mean? So I already knew my complaint wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? So, I mean, that, I mean, I'll give you a good example. You know, and, and this is a classic one because um, it's a, a case that I've been watching out in Orange County, New York, where you have in just one courtroom, imagine this, you have a situation where, you know, you have the attorney for the child and, and they're doing their own thing and they're, you know, connected in certain professional relationship ways to the other players in the courtroom. But then you have this, this one guy who's, you know, uh, a pro se litigant because his attorney uh, right before he um, hit a critical juncture wanted to demand a, a large sum of money that he couldn't pay. So he had to represent himself um, at a really uh, uh, concerning point in the case. But then on the other side, if you look at it, you have this lawyer representing his, um, the mother of the child who's, I guess his, he is the son-in-law of a family court judge in that same court system with the judge who's presiding over it. And the two of them were like city court judges together way back in the day. So they already had a good relationship. So you have a judge presiding over a case and his good friend, another judge who's in that same system, the son-in-law is now representing a client. So the, the impropriety there is, is unbelievable. And not only do these people hail from the same town, but the current district attorney is also from the same little town where these two hailed from originally uh, in this part of the county. So there's really nowhere to go in a situation like that. Do you, I mean, you want to talk about a situation that, you know, looks rigged. Well, if it looks, looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, you know, but again, it, it, people have no recourse. So where do you go with it? You know, the recourse that's supposed to be there is, you know, could very well be, you know, uh, be compromised to some extent. And I think that's the part in a lot of these counties. Yeah. Yep. Their game, so. their rules. Their game, their rules. Exactly. And, um, you know, how do you fix something like that? It's, it's a tough one. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, I think people will wake up to this at some point, and I hope it's sooner than later, um, because we're losing a lot of good mothers and fathers out there to the system. We're losing a lot of kids that are going into foster care that shouldn't be in foster care. Um, you know, you're losing people uh, that are reported by CPS for violations that, that didn't even exist. Um, you know, and it's it's just it's not working. You know, and I think people need to realize that um, and take the money out of it. You know, that's the big thing. You can somehow find a way to take the profit incentive out of all this. I guarantee you, the number of cases that are before the courts each year will dramatically decrease. I don't know. Seem like seem like somebody should implement a process or a program that could truly uh get in between um I guess I don't know, I guess they're trying to do that, the children and the court system that 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 they that's truly about the child, but they don't seem like that happens. They say they're about the child but some it, it always they always colored about what they feel is right for that child. And it doesn't sure. necessarily have to be so because they don't know that child, you know. And then when you, you take when you a... take when you take the parental rights away from a child, especially when it's a good you know a, a good parent and they just going through a custody thing for whatever. And a lot of times, you know, even a divorce, as you know, there's you know it's really emotionally charged, you know. And once cooler heads uh, prevail, you know, then okay, yeah, you're right. Dad can have fifty percent. Mom got fifty percent. And uh, we'll we'll you know raise a child jointly as we should, but when you got yeah. these extra people in there, 
you know, uh, checking your FICA score and doing all this other crazy stuff and and asking the child, um, does your father spank you and all this other kind of crazy stuff. And then, you know, the child ends up wanting to be with the parent that buys the most gifts. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and you see that. You, can, you sometimes see that quite a bit at the beginning of these things, you know, when, uh, when everybody's trying to almost – it's almost like a competition, Um you know, especially, you know, a lot of fathers want their sons with them, at least, you know, the men that I, I know, you know, you know, they, they want the young man uh, to be in the young man's life, you know, yeah. and uh, you don't want nobody else raising your son. I mean, you know, if you're any kind of man, you don't. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm on board with that. And I, I think that, uh, you know, it's hard, and I think a lot of uh, fathers, you know, and, and you know, quite a bit of mothers, too, get alienated so much by the process, that's when you see them drop off the radar from their kids' lives. And uh, it's not because that they're these deadbeat dads or they're deadbeat, deadbeat mothers. They I, hurt. I hate that term, by the way. They hurt and beat down. They're, they're they ripped apart. Hurt and beat yeah, down. they're beaten down. Yeah. And uh, if they try to challenge down. the system, they're going to they're gonna get hurt again, you know. So right. I agree with you. They just hurt and beat down. Right. Well, well, Stephen, we're down to the last couple of minutes of the show, man. So give our listeners, man. I hate we didn't have any female callers today because, uh, you know, I kind of ride for the guys sometimes because, you know, I went through this process and I was one of the guys that wanted more time with his son that I was denied, you know. So I went through this, but I wish more females would have called in today and, you know, interjected uh, their little two cents about this broken system and what they feel about it. But listen, tell our listeners where they can go get your book and how they can support you. Oh sure. The um, if you go to Amazon.com, you can you can probably just do a search, and the title of the book is A Broken System: Family Court in the United States. And uh, yeah, I mean the easiest way is just to go to Amazon.com and just run a search of the title, and it'll and should pop right up. Or you can certainly uh, Google my name, Stephen Lewis Krasna, um, and it'll probably lead you to one of the author sites, and you can you can access the book that way as well. I definitely want to say again, thank you so much for coming, man. I enjoyed this conversation because I, I guess because my heart kind of took me back to the day that I went through it. And uh, definitely come back on your next book, man, so we can chop it up some more. I greatly appreciate it. Absolutely, and uh, you know, thank you for uh, thank you for offering a forum uh, for this issue. Uh, not many do, and it's uh, it's appreciated. Well, it's just my little way of giving back, man. I think each one should teach one, and and that's what I try to do. And 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 guys like you, you know, we we bring a, a spotlight on some of these issues that should be talked about. Because if we don't talk about them, nothing's ever going to be done about it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you again. I, I certainly appreciate being on here. Yes, and for all the listeners who joined us late in a couple seconds, you'll be able to hear the show in its entirety wherever you get your music, your podcast from. You can go to our website, worldmovement.com. You can get on Facebook. I guess all the social networks should be able to get this show. And um, I'm sure some things that you don't know that you need to know and don't think it can't happen to you because it can happen to any and everybody. And uh, with that being said, I appreciate you, love you. Take care of yourself.
even though my child takes me all around the world. Oh, I'd be the first to admit that I've had some fun with some of the prettiest girls. But temptation gets strong sometimes. But if it lasts too long, boy, you always seem to call me at the right time and Baby, but you get the work out of me. 